we're going to be talking about the situation in low and middle income countries six months, a little bit more than six months since the invasion of Ukraine, which all of you know was the ominous date of the 24th of February. So let me introduce myself. My name is Charlotte Hebebrand. I'm the Director for Communications and Public Affairs here at IFPRI. Our media manager, Drew Sample, will be joining us soon, is a little bit stuck in traffic. Um, and I'd like to welcome all of you online. Um, we have uh, with us Philip Rasher from AgriPulse, Josephine Okoje from Business Day in Nigeria, David Lynch and Emily Rahula, both with the Washington Post, Barnabas Tandlana, uh, who's a freelance writer for Reuters, uh, Jerry Hagstrom from the Hagstrom Report, and Anne Finnegan from the Irish Farmers Journal. We will also have uh, several journalists that will be listening to the recording afterwards. Um, and we have in person, very happy to see Steve Baragona here from the Voice of America. So a warm welcome to, to all of you. Our uh, IFPRI researchers that will be doing this briefing for you this morning, um, I think probably need, don't need much introductions. It's David Laborde and Joe Glauber, both of them senior research fellows at IFPRI. In addition, Joe is uh, the former chief economist at USDA. And they will be providing some updated analysis on the global food security considerations and answer your questions about the potential short and longer term impacts of the ongoing crisis. In addition, uh, and I imagine it will be Joe, will also provide an overview of uh, USDA's latest world agricultural supply and demand estimates, which are all, always highly anticipated. Uh, this one was just released yesterday, and we'll be talking about what the findings of that uh, report show for food security around the world. And before I hand it over to, to Joe, who will um, start the briefing, let me just also briefly mention one other report uh, that is being released today. And that is a mid-year report uh, for the 2022 Global Report on Food Crisis, which is being put together by the Food Security Inf Information Network, of which IFPRI is a member. Um, so it comes out with some very important and timely updates on the number of people that are uh, in re requiring urgent humanitarian assistance. So their report, uh, again, being released um, today, indicates that uh, we are forecast to reach up to 205.1 million people in 45 of the 53 countries or territories that are included in the GF GRFC uh, report, which was published in May. So this is an update on, on that report. And importantly, um, uh, out of those 45 countries, the, the data shows that there was an increase of up to 29.5 million people um, in need of urgent humanitarian assistance since last year, so quite significant. Um, and also important to mention that the report does include, this mid-year report does include a section on the Ukraine crisis and its impact on, on food and fertilizer prices. However, the estimates I just gave you, the forecasts, do not, for many of the um, 45 countries, do not yet capture the compounding impacts of the war in Ukraine. Uh, they only did that for 16 countries. Uh, in addition, this report has a section on the Horn of Africa, which I think is one of the uh, most dire regions in the world right now in terms of um, really reaching uh, famine proportions in, in, in Kenya, Somalia, and, and Ethiopia. So with that, let me turn it over to Joe Glauber, um, who will uh, kick us off on this press briefing. Thanks again, everybody. 
Well, thanks, Charlotte. Um, and welcome everybody um, attending here and online. Good. Oh, I see my camera's a little shot. Um, yeah, I got it. Uh, so I, I thought what I would do briefly, um, uh, uh, David will uh, be joining us in a second, but uh, I would give a, a kind of a brief overview of where we are right now relative to the um, you know, last six months. It, I think Ukraine captured so much attention sort of in the food security space, particularly early on, uh, while prices were, uh, uh, you know, we saw them go up 30, 40, 50 percent. Um, a lot of concern over how well uh, countries were going to be able to, uh, you know, first of all, uh, even get access to food, but then um, uh, how were they were uh, going to be able to pay for it. We also had this emerging issue as well on sanctions and how they might be affecting the fertilizer market, because both uh, Russia and Belarus uh, are major um, exporters of, of fertilizer um, uh, to the to the world, and so a lot of questions on how that would translate into productivity, um, poverty, other sorts of issues. What I'm going to uh, kind of deal with in the first few uh, things, just on the the actually what's been happening in Ukraine and how that how, why that is continues to be a concern. And and of course we the the news has been full of great progress on the military front, but on the agricultural front, you still have very serious problems. From the beginning, what we had was uh, um, this blockade of Ukraine ports. And remember that Ukraine is a major exporter of foodstuffs. Um, our, our calculations, when we put things on a caloric basis, about 6% uh, uh, of what's traded in the world. And particularly if for uh, commodities like wheat, where it's 10%, uh, maize, uh, some 15% or so, sunflower, oil, 50%, very major player. and essentially 90% of what they, they export goes out through those Black Sea ports. So when the war began, and even prior to the actual invasion, the about a week before, those ports were blocked. And um, moreover, uh, insurance companies, other um, shipping companies just refused to uh, send ships into the area because of an active war going on, obviously. What happened then is that Grain was, and other commodities were forced to find alternative routes. And there was a lot of reports early on about grain uh, moving by rail out to the, the Danube, down through Romania to some of the uh, uh, ports there, or up through Poland and the Baltic countries. Just remember that that adds substantial cost to shipping grain. And so while all that, uh, we did see some grain flow, it wasn't much. And you can see on the chart um, that really uh, the, the months uh, following the invasion, we are at very, very low levels, one to two million tons, when at times Ukraine ships six, seven million tons of, of grains. So, and, and this is just barley, wheat, and, and corn. Um, I don't have on here vegetable oil and other, other um, foodstuffs that they do ship. Um, it's just to say that that was a huge blow, both to the world in terms of getting grain, where normally Ukraine would be shipping a lot of, of, of wheat from last year's harvest, um, corn, other, other things. They were just unable to get it out. And so um, what that meant is that storage uh, space 
which normally would have been vacated because people would have been getting uh, grain out of storage into ships off to other uh, things. All of a sudden that started backing up. And we're at a point now where um, at least in the early, um, by early fall, where the fall plant or the spring planted crops are starting to be harvested and there's very, very little storage space. And uh, of course, what the big news last month was that there was an initiative in the Black Sea, um, uh, this so-called Black Sea Grain Initiative that was brokered by Turkey and the United Nations between Russia and Ukraine that's allowed um, grain and other uh, foodstuffs to move out of the three of the ports uh, right around Odessa. And that's about 50% of the shipping capacity. And you can see uh, by the chart that yes, a lot has shipped about 2 million tons or so of, of wheat, barley, and um, uh, uh, corn to a variety of countries. I would say there's been a lot of attention where um, early on people were saying, well, gee, this just seems to be going to high-income countries like the EU. Yes, that's true. A lot of corn does go to the EU. A lot of corn goes to China. But these are pretty typical patterns. And remember that a lot of the early trade this, in August were ships that had already been loaded in February at the time of the invasion and just now are getting out. So it shouldn't surprise us that, that uh, these trade patterns look very different than what they normally would look like. But the critical thing is these are still low levels. And maybe this uh, hope, I think the world hopes that this will kind of get back to more normal patterns. But remember at this time of year, they are exporting typically around 6 million tons of grain. And that just isn't happening. They're roughly around uh, about 30% of that level. Um, and, and that's gonna, um, uh, all that means is that yes, some of the grain is moving out, but we still have very uh, big storage problems. And where that has an impact is the fact that when you can't get story, when you can't move that grain out, or you have to go by very, very expensive routes to get it out, that means much lower prices within uh, Ukraine. So even though world prices, which have come down a lot over the last uh, couple of months, the, the, the fact is, is that, um, uh, in Ukraine, they still remain quite low. And that could potentially have adverse effects on plantings come this fall when farmers would typically be planting uh, next year's wheat crop because they're facing, as David's going to talk in a minute, still very, very high input costs in the form of energy costs and fertilizer costs, but then low prices. Okay, so I'll move quickly to well, what about the rest of the world? And I think this is a really important thing is that we, uh, one is that countries have been able to find additional grain. Um, they have been able to make up for the lack of Ukraine in, um, and, to, and to some degree, Russia. Remember that Russia also was affected by this, uh, has been affected by the war itself in the, in the sense the first two months in the war, um, uh, uh, ships leaving the Black Sea, it was hard to get ships into the Black Sea because of insurance reasons and other other factors, um, Russia has seemed in the last few months to sort of regain a lot of the uh, um, export uh, volumes that it typically would ship at this time of year uh, because of the Southern Black Sea ports have been open. And the fact that, that their own policies that they had export taxes on and other things they've, as the new crop has come in, they have now um, uh, relaxed those export taxes. So a lot, of, a lot more grain has been flowing. But if you look around the rest of the world, at least in the first six months, there's some surprising things. One is that 
remember last year in, in North America, Canada and the US had very poor crop. Um, and that has been uh, reflected in the fact that the first six months of this year, they just didn't ship a lot of wheat. That has started to turn around. Canada has an excellent crop. Uh, where you do see a lot of, um, uh, uh, have you, where you have seen a lot of increase in exports is from the Southern hemisphere, both Argentina and Australia had excellent crops. Uh, we had Brazil because of high prices have been exporting. Brazil isn't typically an exporter. India, a lot of, there's been a lot of news about India about uh, putting on export bans and other sorts of things. But remember that India isn't a traditional large wheat exporter, yet the last couple of years they have been. So all that's been good. I think that um, certainly if you look at the WASD that came out yesterday, you'll um, and looking forward for the 22-23 crop, that a lot of, of uh, countries are going to be making or help making up this deficit. But the, the critical thing is, as we'll see in a moment, we're not really rebuilding stocks. If you look at uh, global ending stocks here calculated as days of use, so uh, this is sort of akin to what's often referred to as stocks to use ratio, it's just put in terms of how many days of, 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 of crops we have in terms of um, in storage at the end of the, the marketing year. And you can see that these things uh, we, you know, in some cases, a little bit of improvement over last year. These are projected levels at the end of the marketing year. So, um, but, but by the same token, you look at a, a crop like wheat, it's at the lowest level uh, pretty much since um, uh, you'd have to go back to 2007, eight when we had very high prices. So this is in fact, one of the reasons why we have continued high prices. And that typically when we, when we see periods of low stocks, what we have higher prices, Producers tend to, to plant more. We do see those, those um, stocks start to rebuild and prices come down. But, but what this crisis has done to a degree and the fact that Ukraine, this war has affected three, essentially three crops at this point of view, because it's obviously the crops that were harvested last fall weren't able to get marketed uh, in time. You have the the crops that were harvested this this um, this summer in the in the sense of the winter uh, wheat crop also um, is affected uh, hasn't been able to get uh, fully marketed and the fact that low prices probably are, are looks like uh, they may have a very uh, big Im impact on on Ukraine plantings a report out of the Ministry of Agriculture uh, I think it was yesterday was talking about uh, plantings being potentially down 30%. Again, we'll see, know a lot more over the next couple of months, but that's the real concern is that next year's crop will be affected too, which would prolong these this tight global uh, market situation a bit longer. And then lastly, I just wanna uh, mention um, my colleague who will be up in a moment, David Laborde has put together a export restriction tracker that I think most of you know about that. Um, and we've looked at these export restrictions um, during COVID uh, compared it to what was going on during the last, uh, the really big food price crisis in 2007, 2008. And you can see that, that um, you know, we, we still are, uh, have uh, a lot of uh, uh, crops affected by export restrictions. The good news is commodities like palm oil, Indonesia had a, 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 an export restriction on palm oil. Palm oil is comprises about 40 to 45%, if I'm not mistaken, of, of uh, traded vegetable oil in the world. 
Um, very, very important. And so uh, when Indonesia put on a ban that had immediate impacts with prices uh, skyrocketing for palm oil and, and, the, and bringing up the other vegetable oils as well. And we had this serious drought in Brazil last year that affected soybean oil. A lot of things happening in the vegetable oil market, but further exacerbated by these export restrictions. Indonesia has since relaxed that um, uh, largely because their own producers were um, uh, adversely affected and were, were protesting and other things. And so they dropped the, the export restrictions. Vegetable oil prices have come down as a result, um, uh, which is a good thing. But in the meantime, we do have new restrictions. India has put a, a restriction on wheat flour. Not a, not a terribly big thing. They've already shipped a lot of wheat flour this year. They typically ship a lot more wheat than they do flour. Um, and as I say, they aren't large uh, exporters. What's more troubling is the recent announcements on rice. Uh, India um, has a ban on rice. Uh, broken rice, these are, um, as the name implied, broken kernels of rice that get shipped. They're primarily used for feed in developed countries, but in developing countries, uh, those countries will, will consume um, broken rice. And um, uh, India has put a ban on it. Again, a small part of their overall rice uh, exports, but but India is the world's largest rice exporter. And the other thing that has been talked about is putting on export um, uh, taxes for rice. And with that, I've gone a long time, but I'm going to turn it over to David Laborde and let him um, talk about uh, input markets. Mm -hmm. Yes, thanks, Joe, for uh, this overview of what's happened on the uh, commodity markets for agricultural products. Uh, I'm going to be brief, but um, give you an idea of what's happened on the, the, the input side and why it matters uh, for different reasons. The first one is there is this tradition of saying, you know, that the remedy to high, pri to high prices is actually high prices. And because farmers will see higher prices uh, they will have more incentive to plant. But actually what matters for farmers all around the world is profitability. So the comparison between the cost of production and actually the price of its out of their output. Uh, so that's in wheat, uh, maize and, and rice and so on. And uh, as for agricultural commodities since last year, we have seen a rise of fertilizer prices. During this year, um, they went a bit up and down depending on the month. And I would just say also, similarly to what you can see on agricultural markets, there is some seasonality on this. So it's very important to not just, you know, see how prices have changed compared to last month. Uh, sometimes it can be misleading. So typically uh, in May, June, you will see a decrease in some of these fertilizer prices because that's not where most of the people are buying it because they have already acquired uh, typically their inputs for uh, their uh, cropping season in the Northern Hemisphere, for instance. But just to say that prices of fertilizer uh, remain uh, very high for all the type of fertilizer. Uh, so not only nitrogenous fertilizer that are directly linked to the natural gas market and to some extent to the coal market. Uh, and, and therefore uh, here really the tension between Russia and Europe is really uh, shaping this energy market significantly. Um, and also the fact that both the US and Russia uh, and the EU have stopped buying fertilizer to Russia, even if they are not targeted by sanction, de facto uh, companies uh, and 
also potentially farmers in this part of the world that don't want to deal with Russia, they are going to buy their product to, uh, from other suppliers. So you see, we have a shift in the pattern uh, of demand that are putting pressure on uh, other producers like people in the Middle East. And therefore prices are high and prices are high for all farmers uh, of the world. And we have not seen any uh, major decline. And once again, the supply side of the fertilizer industry is pretty important because due to, and you follow your news, you know that the price of natural gas is not just very high in Europe, but it's also now rationing. That make that de facto more than 40% of the fertilizer capacity uh, in Europe are not used and basically doesn't uh, produce. So here also you see how uh, this crisis is impacting the fertilizer market, putting uh, upward pressure on fertilizer prices and basically reducing the profitability of farmers around the world and not triggering, in some cases, this major supply response that we, we were uh, aiming for. And uh, even in a country uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, the situation is worse because actually for most farmers uh, on the output market, so what they sell is not directly linked to this world market. So the price of maize in Kenya, in Malawi, or in Ghana, are not following the upward trend that you have seen on the global markets when they actually import all their fertilizer. And in this case, even if some uh, countries are putting in place some subsidies, there is a part of the increase of fertilizer uh, prices on the world market that go to them. And basically the ratio between maize price and fertilizer price in Africa has fallen by 50% in many countries in the beginning of the year. So you see how this input market is so important because it's the next harvest. And if you want basically to rebuild the stocks that uh, Joe has shown in the uh, previous, uh, in some of the slides, it really means that we need to produce more in the coming month in order to not only uh, keep track with the, the demand, but also start to rebuild inventories because it's only when we will have higher level of inventories that the markets will feel more secure and that we will start to see not only a decrease in prices, but also less volatility in prices. And I will just conclude on, on, on that. As you see, we are still living in a world where uh, every week uh, there is sometimes good news, but also sometimes bad news, like the, the flood in Pakistan that are creating and damaging some crops, creating new demand. Um, and right now, because the rice market has a relatively high level of inventories compared to historical level, you know, the fact that Pakistan is going to lose a part of this rice harvest has not put, uh, uh, has not lead prices to skyrocket, but that contribute to um, a really uh, decrease the resilience of the system. And I'm going to stop here now to uh, be able to answer to your questions. Great. Th thank you so much, Joe and David. Maybe just uh, one brief reference to some other IFRI research that was done on um, the Basically, our modelers looked at the impact of higher food, uh, uh, fertilizer, and energy prices on rural poverty. And just building on, on David's uh, presentation, for many of the African countries in particular, the impact of the fertilizer price increases was demonstrated to have the highest impact on, on poverty. So I just want to make that research available to all of you. Maybe we can circulate that to you uh, uh, separately. So with that, let me open it up to some questions from any of you, and um, I'll, I'll look to see who's got a hand raised uh, online. 
I'm sure I can see them from here. Can you? <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. If, if I, I'm not seeing any hands, so if you're trying to uh, raise your, oh, there we go. Okay. Uh, yes. Hello. This is Bartosz Przezinski. I'm um, calling from Political Europe, uh, so the European uh, Office of the of the Political Brand. Um, there are um, several voices coming, especially from the civil society and NGO, on whether um, the kind of the the the, crisis, the fertilizer crisis that we're seeing now, whether that's that could be an impetus for uh, for a shift away from chemical agriculture, uh, chemical fertilizers, and towards towards alternative methods. Uh, in Africa, we see that with uh, with the. Um, the a project, a billion dollar project funded by Gates and Rockefeller foundations, among others, that promotes the use of chemical fertilizers. We have civil society raising concerns that there are there are alternative models that should be pushed. So a question to um, to the speakers maybe on whether you think uh, food security can be achieved uh, without chemical fertilizers. Um, Thanks for the question, Bartosz. So let's hand over to David. <laughs> so, uh, basic answer, no, uh, not with the type of technology we have and, and not, uh, I would say, before 2050, when the world as a whole has found a way to uh, really develop, I would say, a, a circular economy where we can recycle all nutrients. And the basic story is that with the crops that uh, we are taking away from the fields uh, all around the world, but also in Africa every year, we are removing much more nutrients that we bring back without uh, chemical uh, or synthetic fertilizer. And actually, if we have managed to feed the world uh, uh, today with 8 billion people, it's basically at the beginning of the last century, we have managed to create and synthesize uh, this fertilizer, in particular nitrogenous fertilizer, and not just to uh, uh, rely on manure and, and guano. And that was a big technical innovation 100 years ago. Now, of course, we may need more technical innovation and to uh, be smarter in the way we use this synthetic fertilizer, but we need them. And obviously, if you spend time in Africa and you talk to farmers that doesn't have access to this fertilizer, you understand why they have low productivity, low yield, maintaining poverty and food insecurity. So uh, the fact that we have high fertilizer prices is a problem. Now, part of the solution is how we can use them more efficiently. And obviously here, there is a very important debate. We also want to not waste them and for example, applying um, really basic subsidies to fertilizer like some uh, developing countries are, are doing like in India leads to major waste of fertilizer with environmental damage uh, and the like. So I'm not saying that, oh, you just bring fertilizer everywhere and it's going to be a, an happy place. No, there is actually bad policies related to fertilizer. There is bad practices related to fertilizer, but we need the synthetic fertilizer to grow uh, the biomass uh, we need uh, to feed the world. Now, uh, this has to be used in complementarity with also important practices to have high uh, soil health. So uh, all the discussion we can have about agroforestry, regenerative agriculture is part of the solution, but they have to go end in end with the synthetic fertilizer. And it's clearly not one or the other or all. You know, very expensive fertilizer is a good news. No, it's a very bad news. Uh, for farmer and, and food security. And um, we should not sell dream to people, but really be realistic about how you grow uh, crops today. 
maybe if I can add just two things to that. I, I, I think the discussion around organic fertilizers is, is, is an interesting one, right? Because of course, organic fertilizers do provide nutrients, but it's important to keep in mind that they cannot provide nutrients in the same concentrated fashion that what you're referring to as chemical or some people simply call mineral fertilizers. So for the moment, it, it really would not be possible to only rely on organic fertilizers. In addition to that, in a lot of countries, there simply are no organic fertilizers because people are removing uh, cover crops for other reasons. So I, I think anybody who argues this, uh, this is an opportunity to go fully organic is that's not going to be a great approach to this. Having said that, there's, there is room for great innovation. How can we make organic fertilizers more rich in nutrients? And there is also work being done on organo mineral fertilizers where you're actually combining the two. Um, there's also important work being done on green ammonia and that if we can make that commercially viable and, and actually if, if that may become a reality if gas prices stay as high as they are, that is essentially producing ammonia, which is the key feedstock for nitrogen um, from renewable energy through electrolysis. If that can be done, and there is also a project in Africa, by the way, on, on green ammonia, that would be, I think, a real uh, groundbreaking development if that can be scaled up uh, in a large way. Uh, let's take a question. I think I saw Jerry, you had a question in, in the chat maybe, but I, I'm afraid I can't quite read it from here. Yeah, I'll, I'll read out Jerry's uh, question from the chat. Uh, what should the, this is from Jerry Hagstrom of the Hagstrom Report. What should the current situation mean for planning for next year for institutions like the World Food Program? Where will they get the foodstuffs they have gotten from Ukraine in the past? Yeah, I, let me start with that. David may want to add something. I, I, I think, Jerry, that is the, the, certainly from the World Food Program, this is a, a a scenario they have seen many times in the past, and certainly 2008, uh, 2010-11, uh, anytime when prices are extremely high, uh, it's just not a question of, of, of you know, uh, yes, Ukraine was an has been an important source for World Food Program over the last uh, couple of years. They can find alternative sources. That's not the issue. The real issue is the, the price that they have to pay. And I think that the, the Clearly, when you're talking about humanitarian aid, you want to reduce as many costs as you can. So you want the World Food Program and others to be able to source from the cheapest available um, uh, sources to get it to the, the areas that need it the most in the most effective way. And, you know, uh, there are uh, uh, several national programs that have uh, food aid. Uh, I look at, at the U.S. program, which has it tied up with U.S. Uh, requirements to float to to ship on U.S. maritime ships and other things. Those are unfortunately more costly ways to do it. But I think the 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 importance of providing for governments to be providing assistance to organizations like World Food Program um, just are so important at this at these uh, period because of just uh, the costs of just doing normal business. And again, we're talking about not just helping the, 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 the countries that are normally big recipients. Now we have new demands for like Ukraine and other places where we uh, uh, need to get um, uh, improved uh, food availability. Do you wanna say something about humanitarian exemptions? 
for WFP? Yeah, no, a, a good thing is you probably well aware is the one of the outcomes of the ministerial, the WTO ministerial was uh, for, for many years, countries have argued that, that at least World Food Program should be exempted from any export restrictions. That is countries shouldn't be uh, restricting uh, uh, export of commodities that are being procured by World Food Program. At the, the WTO, uh, at the ministerial countries pledged to, to take on that agreement. Um, so hopefully uh, that will be uh, less of a, a issue going forward. Um, but but uh, yeah, it's a very positive development. But the fact is, they need money to be able to buy grain and to be able to uh, ship grain and 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 other important foodstuffs. Yes, if I can follow up on, on this, the WFP itself, you know, is honestly a small drop in terms of size of uh, food demand in, in global markets. So uh, is you know, most countries of the world still manage to find yeah. uh, grains. WFP would still manage to do it. Uh, as uh, Joa said, there is a question of prices, and so that's an important one. Um, obviously, for for wheat, the price of wheat went, uh, went down in the last uh, few few months compared to uh, the peak in March-April. So that's kind of good news for uh, WFP. Still, that's much more expensive than a couple of years ago. So we still need more money. But also this year, we have a boost in the demand side. So WFP has to increase its activity due to the very severe growth and I mean, situation we have in the Horn of Africa, the conflict in Ethiopia, now the situation in Pakistan. So that's what put pressure really on WFE more than purely the question of availability. Now, uh, I think that one of the pending questions for, for, uh, for WFE and in terms of logistics, when you have to replace shipment from, from Ukraine, one of, of the uh, potential uh, alternative country is Russia. And that's where you are going to see some countries that may not be happy to give money to WFP to buy grains from Russia. Uh, obviously, I think that one of the solution will be WFP to buy some of the uh, semi-processed product like flour uh, from Turkey and Turkey will buy the grain from Russia. So at the end, uh, trade will continue to flow, but that's the kind of challenge because actually Russia this year on the wheat market is one of, of the main uh, countries that can supply more than last year due to very good uh, crops. And that's where you see how uh, the reality of the markets and some uh, diplomatic aspect can uh, interact. Great, I see hands up. I think this is the right order from Bill, Anne, and then Dylan. So go ahead, Bill. Yeah, hi. Uh, I think you were expecting my uh, colleague, uh, Phil, uh, but you got me instead. So I apologize um, for the... Uh, let down there. Oh. But um, it, Dr. Glauber, I, I guess this, this question is mainly for you. Um, uh, you know, everybody's talking about the three Odessa ports that are now open. And, and you rightly said that, that you know, it's still uh, uh, just a fraction of what um, uh, Ukraine can normally uh, ship from. Um, but how solid is that? Uh, um, uh, Black Sea uh, agreement that's allowing all the, the, the this grain to go out. I mean, should we uh, be concerned that this could well be temporary, especially as, uh, you know, conflict heats up there? 
Yeah, no, Bill, you're absolutely right. It, it's always been tenuous. If you remember that no, the, the, the agreement had been inked for about three hours when uh, rockets hit um, uh, nearby uh, in Odessa. And, and so this has been fraught with tension all the way through. Um, the, Russia has been critical of the agreement uh, recently because they uh, remember the chart that I showed that some of the um, grain that was being exported was going out to the EU and, and other high income countries and and you know uh, Putin in fact is in Turkey this this week to talk about the uh, one of the items that will be talked about is the grain agreement. There have been other uh, reports that that senior officials within Russia have said that there's no need. To extend the the agreement beyond the the couple months that that had been uh, it, it originally had been established for. So I think there's there's a lot of uncertainty, and you have an active war going on, and a war that is escalating right now because of of these offensive uh, that we've seen over the last couple of weeks. So yes, yeah, very tenuous. Let's hope that it continues. That it, let's hope that grain um, coming out of those southern uh, ports actually increases and gets back towards more normal levels. But I think those are all hopes at this point. And um, right now, uh, it, it's a situ situation that's, that's very, very tense and very uneasy. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, Joe, Anne, do you want to jump in with your question? Yes, good afternoon. It's Anne Finnegan here from the Irish Farmers Journal. Two questions for the panel, please. Um, and the first one is similar to um, Bartas's question earlier. In the medium term, when you look at the trajectory of EU policy, specifically the farm to fork, the ambition to um, have 25% of agri-land farmed organically by 2030, and also some of, um, you know, I suppose our, our climate change emissions um, plans, so very much centred around territorial targets, like here in Ireland, that will actually, um, if we're to achieve them, see a reduction in production you know, more so than the immediate term, in, into the um, medium term, do you see that as a challenge in terms of world food supply and accepting um, that I'm asking the question from Ireland, which is largely um, a producer of livestock proteins? And then my second question just is relating to fertilizer for the growing season ahead. Um, obviously, a lot of countries, um, net importers are grappling with um, how to purchase fertilizer. And certainly even in a country in Ireland, there's um, there's an ask from our exporters for government intervention. I suppose, first of all, what are your thoughts on that? And secondly, how might that um, interfere with the market? So, uh, yes, obviously, uh, the situation on the world market is putting some uh, some pressure on the EU policy of farm to fork, but more generally on the Green Deal, both um, raising some opportunities and some challenges. Uh, and, and what we see on, on the food market is actually also mirror, but what's happened, you know, on the energy market. And on one hand, you will see people saying, oh, that's a good news because now we have to learn to get out of the natural gas coming from Russia. But if on the short run, it's meaning producing more electricity with coal, obviously uh, the uh, environmental targets are not reached. And to some extent in agriculture, we have seen the same uh, debate with, on the spot of the a very ambitious uh, farm to fork agenda that tried to uh, make uh, European agriculture uh, greener and on which uh, the, the organic pilaf, for example, is pretty important. Uh, 
uh, and but we have to be careful, you know, organic and green is not synonymous. Uh, there's important subtleties to keep in mind uh, uh, there. Um, but one of the response to uh, the, the crisis was in Europe to see farm lobby saying, oh, we need to put more land in cultivation, for instance. So instead of keeping land that we have protected on which we have restored carbon stock and also some biodiversity, the first response was let's get rid of them and uh, produce more, even if actually the amount of uh, grains or, or seed we can get from this piece of land will be pretty low because in many cases, the piece of land you put in this set-aside program are uh, marginal land to, to start uh, with. So you can see the, this contradiction. Now, for, uh, for the future, um, I don't think that uh, the, the current uh, crisis is going to, to shatter the foundation on which this uh, new trajectory of, of the uh, common agricultural policy is built on. And obviously also uh, the target of uh, decarbonizing the European economy and the food system in the economy is going to stay. Now, how what will be the balance in terms of how much food is produced within the border of the EU uh, around this question of food sovereignty uh, discussion that will come back. Uh, but also the question is, you know, do we consider that Ukraine is going to remain uh, a reliable supplier? And actually, do we want to help Ukraine rebuild its economy and its farm sector after the war by bringing more agricultural products to Ukraine or saying, no, the East part is too risky and we don't want to depend on this, but you see there is both economic choice but also geopolitical one, because you cannot at the same time say, we want to support Ukraine and we are not going to buy the agricultural products. Uh, so, you know, where we produce is a question, uh, but also, uh, as you say, how we produce it. And we should not be here also um, too naive about the, the organic farming aspect, because organic farming still lead to lower yields than uh, traditional farming. Of course, you can mitigate this, but if it was giving you same productivity, farmers will all shift to organic farming because they get a better price on their output. They will have to spend less on their input and they will get the same productivity. No, if they don't do it, it's because it leads to lower productivity. So now if more organic production in Europe means lower productivity, Europe will have two choices or reduce basically its food consumption. And what it means mainly is to reduce livestock consumption, to reduce the demand of feed. And that's all the debate you know about how much meat or dairy product is consumed in Europe. But that's some a decision that at the end consumer will have to do. Or we are going to, in Europe, import more agricultural product. And basically, the land that we need to produce the food will have to come from somewhere else. And you can put more def deforestation pressure in Latin America, in Africa. So there is important trade-off. And what is important for the European stakeholders is really to understand this trade-off there is no freelance, there is no miracle solution. Um, and the question is which option the society is ready to make to adapt to some extent to the new situation, where even in Europe this year, you have very severe droughts that are reducing obviously the wheat production in France. The uh, situation in Northern Italy is also uh, very serious. So the idea of or Europe can stay and all the food that European consume can be done in Europe is not even Credible because climate change is here and uh, the, the food supply will still to be uh, impacted. Now, uh, to move quickly on the fertilizer as aspect, yes, I mean, European farmers today are suffering from high fertilizer prices. 
we have seen some European countries be able to deploy some, um, basically subsidies like Poland to protect some of their uh, farmers. You can see a similar situation in Ireland, but also when you see why what is what for fertilizer are used for Ireland, it's a lot also to get uh, higher uh, yield in pasture land. So it's also linked basically to the livestock sectors. And if we at one point we want basically market prices to reflect both the fact that fertilizer are not so great for the environment, but also that you know producing um, meat products. Uh, that require either pasture land or grains are actually uh, should be more expensive in order for consumers to adjust. We don't want to interact uh, with that. But obviously, you know, it's not like if farmers in Europe are a very uh, wealthy part of the society. So they will have to be protected in a way by uh, policymakers. Now, subsidizing just fertilizer is not the way forward because it's just you know reinforcing bad practices. And I would say if Europe doesn't reduce its demand for fertilizer this year, it means that other parts of the world will have to do. And what we don't want is basically subsidized fertilizer in Europe that will actually compete on the world market with other producers, but also including African uh, fertilizer buyer and uh, creating this type of wrong competition we want. Uh, maybe I will uh, move to Joe that want to say something about how the U.S. in particular are looking at this situation on fertilizer prices. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, clearly their high input costs are a concern. And, and even with the, the most recent farm income numbers, which showed very strong income um, this last year in, in the U.S., at least sec, uh, sectoral income, um, people point to the fact that input pr prices are so high. And I, I uh, would agree totally with David that, that um, I think we have to, um, I have to, we have to be careful here because it, it, I think the market will take care of itself over, over time. Um, uh, again, with increased uh, mineral production where that's available uh, uh, as natural gas prices come down other sorts of things. But uh, I think the last thing you want to do is subsidize that, uh, particularly for um, uh, you know, developed country uh, farmers that, that where they are seeing very, very high prices, at least that they're, they're partially compensated for those higher input or more than, more than compensated for those higher input costs, at least right now. Maybe I can just make one comment on that, Anne. I remember, I think Ireland used to have a fertilizer industry and decided to end that industry. And, and Irish farmers have always complained since then about the price of fertilizers. So I can only imagine what it's like now. And, and recently, the Fertilizers Europe, the, the association in, in Europe, indicated that with the rise in, in natural gas prices in Europe, they, they estimate that... Uh, natural gas now makes up about 90%, usually it's 70% of ammonia production. So clearly there's a big problem, but I would completely agree that subsidies are not the way to go, in particular because farmers in Europe are still benefiting from a higher price as well. So their overall um, uh, you know, output to input price ratio is, is much more favorable than, than in poorer countries. Um, so I think um, Dylan is next. Hello, um, Dylan Cresswell calling in from African Business Magazine in London. Um, I'd like to pick up on a point that um, Monsieur Laborde made about sub-Saharan African countries particularly suffering uh, from the impacts of higher input costs with relation to fertilizers on the basis of there not being any 
domestic production taking place in Africa. Um, the foundations have been laid for domestic fertilizer production in Africa over the last few years. Uh, so a lot of phosphate mining takes place, especially in Morocco, and the natural gas resources are there for increased production of ammonia. Um, and we saw Alaco Dangote in Nigeria set up one of the continent's largest ever fertilizer production plants earlier this year. Um, so my question to the panel is that as we look forward, um, bearing in mind Africa's vulnerability to global supply chains during this crisis and moving forward, uh, would the best way for Africa to rectify its problems with vulnerability to, in to input costs to be to improve international cooperation and improve transparency in those supply chains? or to focus on a continental um, specific agenda, perhaps through the new African continental free trade area, which allows Africa to become self-sufficient in its fertilizer production? That's a great question. So I, I can start. Um, so let's start by saying that, you know, uh, Africa is more than 55 countries. They are very diverse and they are not all, uh, they don't, of course, they share the same continent. But if you're in Morocco or if you're in Madagascar, your natural trade partners may not be on the continent. I mean, Morocco will still have Europe next door when Madagascar, to some extent, is facing India and the Gulf countries. So we should not just having a narrative that say, oh, Africa should trade with Africa just because they are on the same continent. You know, geography matters. And therefore, we can see different patterns. And that's why, for example, in Nigeria, it still makes sense people in Nigeria to export their fertilizer to Brazil that are a big market ready to pay next door. Uh, and it would still be in many cases cheaper to export fertilizer from Nigeria to Brazil than from uh, Nigeria to Ethiopia, for instance, just due to infrastructure and geography. Of course, we can improve the uh, connectivity of Africa and that will be key in the coming year also to make the Africa uh, continental free trade area a reality. But I would say we should not force feed uh, an artificial agenda. Now, what is sure is there is phosphate, in particular in Northern Africa, from Morocco uh, to Tunisia, that can be combined with um, uh, nitrogen fertilizer made from natural gas, also uh, produced in Ethiopia, in Algeria, in Nigeria, tomorrow in other parts of Africa. So we want to get basically Africa to take opportunity of the resources that exist and can be processed locally and distributed locally. But I mean, not only you know, in Nigeria, we need to see uh, order uh, of this uh, production taking place. Africa, we still have a deficit in potash uh, because the main uh, potash uh, mines in Africa are in Eritrea uh, and they will not cover uh, the whole need of the continent when actually, you know, product like uh, plantain, uh, banana need uh, potassium still mean that Africa will need to be connected to uh, the rest of the world uh, to get all the nutrients they need. But obviously there is a lot of opportunity. I think it's great to see how Africa in the recent years were able to uh, process in particular the natural gas into uh, nitrogen fertilizer. But personally, I will also very be uh, pleased to see if we have a large um, initiative on green ammonia, as Charlotte was referring to, meaning that where you kind of start to produce ammonia in a decarbonized way, so you just need water and electricity, and electricity made from renewable, sun and wind, 
And that I think big opportunities for Africa because it means that also African countries that today doesn't have natural gas or doesn't want to uh, go crazy on, on fossil fuel can also develop their own uh, fertilizer industry in a much more decentralized way, uh, in a much more inclusive way. Because let's be honest, today one of the major barriers uh, of penetration of uh, fertilizer in Africa is still distribution cost, uh, transportation cost, that's very expensive. And so the more you can have uh, local production, but you see in this sense that make way using technology that uh, allow to get this more decentralized production and give access to a local source of fertilizer in an efficient way is what we want to, uh, to do. And if at the same time that can contribute to the climate agenda of the continent and basically not just do, you know, paste and copy of the mistakes of other parts of the world, that, that will be important. Um, yeah, I, 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 we just uh, get back to that, that, that really without even talking about nitrogen, you could be just as, or, or, or fertilizers, you could talk about food as well. I think that, that what David's saying, the uh, things like transportation infrastructure, that the costs of moving grain uh, or any food stuff or fertilizer or anything from the coastal countries inland uh, there's just very, very high costs. And, and we've done some work uh, uh, at IFRI uh, monitoring those costs, looking at informal trade, looking at other things. But that really is the key. And when we talk about a continental free trade agreement, I think that is really important. It'd be great to bring down some of those tariffs. Those external tariffs are actually quite, quite high. But the real um, I think it, the, the, the real key is reducing those transactions costs in terms of moving um, uh, grain, uh, you know, from from inland markets to the to export markets and and vice versa um, to to increase interregional trade. Um, and, and just to uh, maybe finish on this point, that we are also in this crisis. You know, we are talking about food prices, we are talking about fertilizer prices, but we also know that fuel uh, prices are pretty high. And that's where many uh, you know African farmers are already suffering from that because. Transportation cost in Africa is directly linked to fuel prices. You know, everything goes by from motorcycle to, to trucks, but it's not like, you know, even you have a, a very strong uh, railroad systems. So everything is linked to fuel and, and diesel and gasoline. And currently these prices have more than double. So it means that the connection of farmers to cities to get their inputs or to sell their outputs uh, have been really hurt by this meaning that they have to reduce their selling price to still access to the urban centers and they have to pay more to bring any input they need. Uh, and so, you know, this investment in infrastructure and making sure that these trading costs go down up between countries and within countries is key to address the structural weaknesses that uh, Africa is facing today. And so at the end, uh, the, the, the sadness of the continent is not the fact that they are too integrated uh, with the rest of the world, um, including themselves, but not enough integrated. Great. Uh, thanks, everybody. I don't see any more hands up unless somebody's got a last question they want to ask. Um, if not, let me really thank very much um, uh, Joe and David for their uh, presentations and answering your questions. And many thanks to all of you for joining. And then last but not least, I'd like to invite Drew Sample to the uh, podium. 
Uh, many of you know Drew. He has been uh, IFPRI's media manager for quite a number of years and is sadly leaving IFPRI. So I just want to thank him for all the great service that he has provided to IFPRI. And uh, you'll be much missed, Drew. <laughs> Uh, thanks, Charlotte. I, I didn't prepare any speech for this, so I'll just also say thank you to everyone on the on the call. Uh, it's been great working with all of you. Many of you have, have been working with for a few years now, uh, and I do hope that we will stay in touch in uh, in my future endeavors as well. So thanks. Excellent. And, and do get in touch with me. In the meantime, we will get a new media manager, but I'm very happy to uh, to be in touch with all of you, know some of you, and look forward very much to working with you. And don't hesitate to come back if you have any questions about anything that was presented today or, or any uh, further research done, done by IFPRI. Have a great rest of your day from wherever you're, you're calling in from.